Blog Talk Radio.
satellites in the skies broadcasting lies to billions of people. Camels on the streets tracking who we meet and call this liberty. Server 
it took to, to send them out. Because it, starting at 2 o'clock, I should have easily been able to send out the emails uh, by now. Uh, and it looked like, uh, when I checked over there a few minutes ago, it looked like it only sent out about five or 6,000 of them. So I'll find out what the deal is with that. Uh, like I said, uh, we'd like for you to call in to let us know about your your recent April shoots. And <clears throat> if you want to tell somebody thanks, if you want to tell one of your local crew thanks, or uh, or mention their name on the air, folks that have uh, uh, shot the rifleman standards, folks who have just been doing a good job in their local crews, or uh, somebody that's got their red hat or their green hat, or a new IIT, and you want to get their name out, now's your chance to do it. In just a minute, we're going to start talking about uh, the events following the April 19th, 1775, uh, the battles at Lexington, uh, the North Britain conquered, and along Battle Royale. We're going to talk about the events that began after that. That was the beginning of the American Revolutionary War. And you had the the, uh, the the first engagement at Lexington Green, and then uh, the British regulars uh, continued on to their their actual destination, which was Concord. And uh, once they got to Concord, they did their their unlawful search and seizure there, and then there was a battle at the North Bridge. Now, once that once they had fought the battle of the North Bridge, they formed up to return to Boston. And if you know your history, you'll know that this was the the most damaging part of the trip for them. Uh, the the constant battle, the nonstop battle from Merriam's Corner outside of uh, Concord, all the way back to Boston. And once they got to Boston, they were buttoned up inside of Boston uh, for the next uh, eight months. And uh, and during that time, right after uh, the events of April 19th, you had uh, Bunk- the Battle of Bunker Hill, or actually Breed's Hill, where the, the, the battle actually took place. But that battle was, uh, was right after the uh, initial battles at Lexington Concord and uh, uh, Battle Road, and we're going to talk about those, about the, the things that uh, occurred after the initial battles on April 19th. So that's where we are now, right? So we'd like to hear about, uh, uh, if any of you uh, would like to call in and let us know about how your April 19th events went, we'd love to hear about that. If you want to call in and tell somebody thanks, we'd love to hear about that. If you want to call in and mention uh, something, that, some project that you have going, or some commercial venture. It doesn't have to be apple seed related. If you want to call in and talk about some commercial venture that you have, uh, you'd like for us to mention on the air, we'll be glad to do so at no charge, uh, blog talk, and, uh, and get that information out on the air to you. We already have a few folks that we, uh, that we mention on a weekly basis. Uh, Blue Feather and Tiles Glock, uh, making a handmade soap. And you can find them at uh, uh, Blue Feather, uh, Google Blue Feather Soap, and you'll find it. 
Uh, for you guys in the chat, I'm sure that uh, Call Center will put that in there for you, the uh, the website. And we've got uh, Desert Eagle Farms for uh, uh, for storable, long-term storable foods. And also, uh, Jimmy does the, he's got the Mill Dot Master that he has a dealership with now. And that is a, a little device that you can carry with you and use it to accurately uh, gauge distances, all right? Now, you have to have a known, something of a known size to use to gauge your distance, but you can do that fairly easy. Uh, you know, if you look at a deer, you know how big the deer is, and you can use uh, the, the mathematical formulas in the Mildot Master. Now, don't get excited. I'm not talking about that you're going to have to do any adding or subtracting or trigonometry or anything. It's all done for you in a, on a, a slide rule type device. Uh, and it will accurately give you the range to whatever, whatever you're shooting at. It's a very accurate device. Uh, it includes uh, the ability to uh, give you data for uphill and downhill shots, and it is very inexpensive. Uh, I believe he said that uh, they were selling for about 30 plus bucks on the Internet. Uh, if you're an Apple C person, I guess, or anybody really that listens to the show, you want to buy one, and you contact him and tell him that you heard it on the show. We'll give it to you for 25 bucks, and he'll ship it to you free. All right? So there's a deal right there. You're getting a 5 bucks off the price, and you're not having to pay shipping. Uh, so that's uh, that's two of the folks. There's plenty of folks. The, we want to thank uh, uh, Poker Face, the band Poker Face, who supplied us with our intro music. And uh, if you if you listen to the words of the song, I'm not gonna I'm not telling you that uh, that the Rifleman Radio advocates uh, advocates everything that they're talking about. Uh, uh, we're not uh, we certainly don't advocate uh, uh, taking a toke of some good smoke, uh, but you know that's uh, some people consider that to be their right and that's uh, their business and none of mine. But you, if you do listen, you'll see what hear him say. You have to fight to remain free, and uh, and that is a very serious uh, statement, and it's a very true statement. You have to fight to remain free, and that goes along with the same philosophy as as the saying that. Uh, all that is needed for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And that's 100% true. There, there's, there's always a, a huge wave. There's always a huge tsunami that we're, that we're pressing back on. And it is evil. It is, there, is, there is evil in the world. I don't care if, you're, if, you, don't, if you don't want to call it evil. You don't have to call it evil. Uh, you can call it, I don't know, trouble or, or whatever. But we're always having to fight back against it. Always. If we weren't, why would we, why would we ever have to, uh, to have a uh, standing army? Because there is always danger. There is always evil. There is always going to be evil. And I'm, I'm talking about all the way from having to lock your doors in your home 
in order to prevent somebody uh, from coming in from robbing you or uh, assaulting you. To even on a national or world scale where where there is a, a need to have a standing army. There is always going to be bad folks wanting to do bad things, and you're always going to have to fight back. You're always going to have to fight to maintain your freedom, always. It's never going to be an easy job. I, 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 there's no way that, this, that it's going to get done just by you uh, leaning back in your nice, comfy recliner, which I wish I had right now. I wish I was in one of those right this second because uh, I have had 17 days now of 7 a.m. to 9 uh, p.m. plus uh, work days, and and I'm getting fried. I'm glad that I'm not I'm not working right now because I'm doing the show, but I feel bad for my partner who is out there still working He's having to do uh, both our jobs because I'm in here uh, talking on the radio. But, uh, you know, I I missed last week's show, so I wasn't going to miss another one. And uh, we uh, that's uh, my partner and I, since we were talking about uh, private ventures, my partner and I put together a company called Battle Road USA. You can find it at battleroadusa.com. And uh, our intention is to be able to give uh, the folks who attend the courses, give them the skills, the uh, techniques, the tactics, the mindset to defend themselves and their loved ones in real-life scenarios. All right? Because you're going to have to do that. That Rose motto is train, prepare, survive. And uh, we're holding a course this weekend. And we've got a few spots left uh, here in Central Texas. A few thoughts left for the level one, level two handgun courses. And listen, when I say level one and level two, don't mistake level one for being a baby course. Uh, my partner and I were talking about this uh, today while we were working. Uh, he was talking about how he'd gone to, uh, uh, he's, uh, he's associated with law enforcement and uh, uh, actually very associated. He'd uh, gone to one of his SWAT courses and uh, they were teaching some of the techniques. Uh, it was supposed to be an advanced course. They were teaching some of the techniques in their advanced course that we're going to teach you in a level one course. So don't mistake level one, because I get people saying that all the time. I don't really want to take level one because, man, I know what I'm doing. You, you may well know what you're doing, but you don't know what we're doing. And our level one is not uh, its not a baby course. It's a very fast-paced very uh, intense course, level one. You take level one, level two together. You're going to run about uh, 1,000 to 1,100 rounds. Uh, and uh, all of our instruction uh, is done beginning with the draw, the draw from shield. Because that's normally where you're going to be starting from, right? You're going to be drawing from concealed. If you happen to have that firearm, that handgun in your hand, Whenever uh, uh, whenever bad luck shows its face, then good on you, all right? You're ahead of the game, but normally you're not going to have it. Normally it's going to be in the place where you everyday carry. So that's where all of our training starts. So we'll start with a drawing from concealed. And then uh, uh, in the initial courses, we're going to get you just to draw and shoot, well, just to draw and shoot. Because what we'd like you to do, we'd like you to be able to draw that firearm from concealed 
get your sights on the target and have your first round into the target in center of mass, uh, attempting to uh, strike the central nervous system in about 1.5 seconds. All right, that's uh, that's pretty good for for fresh folks. We'd like you to cut it down to about one one point one second after uh, after you've been doing it for a while. But that's very very fast. And then we're going to teach you to uh, once you've drawn it in the one point five seconds, we're going to teach you to uh, put four rounds per a second into that target. You're going to draw and you're going to fire four rounds in the space of two seconds, two and a half seconds. And that's what we're, uh, that's what we're working on getting you to do. And then we're going to start uh, getting you to, uh, teaching you to move offline. That means immediately while you're drawing, you're removing yourself from an online uh, face-to-face position with your attacker. You're going to move offline and try and break his focus on you and put yourself in a better position. And... Uh, and it'll keep going, getting better and better from there. <clears throat> and we'll end up uh, uh, having you fire on multiple targets and uh, restraining you from firing. And right now what we're doing is uh, we're putting up – it's not really a uh, a shoot house. Uh, it, it can be used for that later. Later on, like when you're in a level 3 or level 4 class – we use that. We'll use the house uh, for force-on-force training with airsoft. Uh, but this is a the uh, the the shoot house that we're building now is a pretty large uh, project, and uh, you won't be shooting inside the house, but you'll be move, maneuvering through the house in order to find targets outside of the house. You know, you'll be going down a hallway, and there'll be a door. You'll exit through the door, and there'll be your targets there against a berm. <clears throat> Level one and two, now we're not going to teach you any tactics, all right, because we're more concerned with making sure that we've, we're teaching you uh, to become fluid in your draw and to be able to maintain your speed and accuracy. Level three and four, we'll start working in the tactics. Uh, you'll be getting force on force, uh, vehicular defense, you'll be learning how to clear your house, room to room clearance, uh, and uh, the force on force, and then a lot of other stuff. <clears throat> shooting from different for, from positions, shooting from the ground after you've fallen, after you've been knocked down, uh, shooting when you're touching, when you're face to face touching your opponent, stuff like that. But at level one and two, which we're having this weekend, we're still going to use the shoot house, but you won't be shooting inside the house. You'll be uh, uh, going through the house and exiting the house in order to make your shots after you uh, exit one of the doors. And that's what we're working on now. So, if you would like to, uh, if you would like to attend the course this weekend, uh, go to BattleRoadUSA.com. That'll give you more information there. And then you can email uh, either uh, Mr. Martinez or myself. And, uh, and if you want to call me, I think my phone number is on there too. It's two five four two one seven one three two five. You can give me a call if you'd like to attend, or you just want to shoot the breeze. All right. Uh, if I'm if I'm not running on power tools or if I'm not shooting, I'll be glad to answer the phone. So that's my spiel there on Battle Road. And uh, in addition to the shooting courses, we are also uh, ginning up some additional courses, including ladies only. We've got uh, we're working right now on bringing a uh, one of the female instructors up to the ranks, and 
She'll be helping us with the ladies only shoot. We're working on uh, uh, the uh, Sarah Connor course, and that'll be uh, teaching ladies. Uh, we'll be teaching you to shoot some, but mainly what uh, the reason I designed this course the way it is is because uh, uh, watching the movies, watching the real life situations where the uh, where the woman goes in, there's, there's someone attacking her, stalking her. They're in the house. They're going after her. <clears throat> she goes to the bedroom. She gets a shotgun out of the closet, and then a box of shells, and she throws it on the desk for the bed, and she's sitting there looking at it because she's got the shotgun. She's got the shells, but that's it. She doesn't. She she doesn't have the rest of the information needed in order to make this work. And then the bad guy comes in, smacks her down, takes it, whatever. So what the Sarah Connor course is going to be uh, uh, focusing on is giving the ladies a, a very good familiarization of uh, the of the majority of firearms they will encounter. Now, they're not going to teach you to shoot every gun that you see, but we're going to give you the uh, the information you'll need to figure it out. Uh, if you're using a pump shotgun, we're going to explain to you how the pump shot, how a pump shotgun typically gets fed its ammunition, where you can find the safety, the uh, slide release, uh, the way that you would aim it, the way that uh, you would get the next uh, round in the magazine, etc. Uh, the revolvers, how the revolvers usually open, where you can find the uh, uh, the uh, uh, cylinder release on, on different types of revolvers, how they load, how they fire. <clears throat> And then uh, they'll go through that on uh, on revolvers, uh, semi-auto handguns, uh, bolt-action rifles, uh, semi-auto rifles, bump shotguns, automatic shotguns, and uh, and uh, load and fire around out of each one. That'll be part of the uh, of the uh, training for them. <laughs> and then uh, a uh, just a a very quick overview of uh, a very very basic. Self-defense, unarmed self-defense techniques, an overview of less than lethal, and then uh, uh, instruction in how to escape from restraints, uh, ropes, duct tape, zip ties, stuff like that. So that if you're a woman and you got put into some type of restraint, we're going to teach you the best uh, ways to possibly get out of that. And then a good uh, a good bit of discussion on threat detection. That is how to recognize a threat. Uh, you know what uh, what to do and what not to do. When you walk out of Walmart and you walk to your car at night, uh, you've got your keys in your hands. If you have a firearm, then uh, you can have your uh, hand on your firearm in your purse. Uh, when you're walking to your car, you're scanning the area. And ladies, please, if there's a uh, if there's a big uh, uh, you know box fan. Uh, pulled up right next to your door. Don't, don't don't get in right there. All right, go to the other side. Climb across from the passenger door if you have to. All right, things like that. So there'll be a, a large bit of discussion on that. It'll be, be for the ladies, and it's a it's a really great course. We've got vehicular defense courses. We have uh, courses in uh, map and compass uh, coming up, and <clears throat> also some courses uh, just uh, some courses to get you started on knowing how to survive uh, in a, uh, like in a 48-hour situation. If you're traveling somewhere and you get a breakdown out in the middle of the wilderness, how you're going to survive that 48 hours uh, until you can uh, get some help and stuff like that. So any of the stuff that uh, that you 
uh, any of the stuff sounds interesting to you, drop me an email or give me a call and uh, take a look at the website, battleroadusa.com. All right? And you can uh, email me myself or Mr. Martinez. We'll be glad to speak with you uh, about this. All right, that's my spiel on Battle Road. All right. Uh, we have a a movie that's coming out. Uh, it actually debuted April 29th in Fredericksburg, Texas, at the Fredericksburg Film Festival. Uh, the movie's name is Behold a Pale Horse. And uh, it it discusses, it has a lot of different information from different folks about different stuff. And uh, I'm not telling you to swallow whole anything that the movie says to you, all right? The movie is, uh, uh, and it has a lot of faith-based stuff in it. And uh, there, are, there are some folks that are talking about uh, prophecy and revelation and stuff like that. Folks, don't get excited. All right. If you uh, if you don't like uh, you don't like stuff uh, that has uh, God in it, then uh, then ignore it. If you don't want to talk to God, don't worry. You don't have to talk to Him uh, right now, anyway. Uh, things that eventually one day you're going to find out that you do have to talk to Him. Uh, that's my personal opinion. But you don't have to worry about any of this stuff. If it, if, they, if the movie, if the folks in the movie start talking about microchips or Agenda 21, just pass it by. The whole reason of Appleseed being in this movie is not because we uh, we advocate any of the stuff that they're talking about. It's because this movie is going to go out to a lot of folks who who do listen to this stuff who are worried about their future, and they don't know what to do about it. Now, and a lot of folks, they get all this information from folks like Alex Jones and stuff like that, and and it's very troubling to them because they don't, they get a whole pile of information about stuff that's, uh, that's coming at them, into the world stuff that's coming at them. But nobody is telling them what they can do to to, to prevent this to repair the rips in the fabric of our nation, all right? And that's where Appleseed comes in. That's why, that's why we were in this movie, all right? We're not in there talking about uh, the end of the world or about Agenda 21 or the Illuminati or anything else. Appleseed is in the movie uh, because we want to give folks the uh, a, a solution, a way to deal with uh, the rest of the stuff that they're getting... Uh, they're getting uh, uh, deluged with, and uh, the cinematography is actually, actually, absolutely beautiful. Uh, the director is Chuck Undersea, and uh, he's a good friend of mine. And, and we've been working on this for almost, I guess, almost four years now, and it's finally out. Uh, you can you can find the movie trailers online. Just Google uh, "Behold a Pale Horse" Heartland Pictures. And uh, and you'll uh, you'll see some of the movie trailers that they have out. Uh, the folks in the movie are uh, let's see, there's Senator Alan Keyes, Larry Pratt from Gun Owners of America, uh, Catherine Albright. There's uh, a Lieutenant General Boykin, who is a pretty amazing guy. He was the uh, the commander of Delta, 
they're one of the he was one of the original Delta Force troops, and uh, there are uh, there are tons of other folks. Charlie Daniels narrates it, and he wrote the theme music for it, and uh, he did an absolutely great job in the film. I'm so glad that uh, Chuck got him. Because first, he was talking about getting Willie Nelson, and and God bless Willie Nelson. I, I love him to death, but it was hard for me to see him uh, narrating a uh, uh, a movie like this. Uh, and, but Willie Nelson did a great job of it. One of my favorite lines in there is uh, Charlie Daniel. He's sitting in a rocking chair by the fire. And he's talking about the the troubles in the nation. And he's talking about how little time there really is to uh, to fix these troubles. And he leans forward and he says, "Boys, it's time to ride. We need a thousand Paul Revere's." And I thought that that was right in line with what Appleseed is doing. Boys, it's time to ride. We need a thousand Paul Revere's. We need to, we need the nation to be alerted, to be informed, and then we need those folks that have been alerted and informed to do something, to do something about their own, about safeguarding and defending their own rights and freedom, not not to let, not to expect somebody else to do it. So, I just wanted to put that out there so that uh, so that everybody would know that. Uh, that we we're not uh we're not advocating anything that's in the movie the, the all we're and the uh the apple seed section is just a an apple seed shoot that we set up uh specifically for the movie and uh then we went to Fredericksburg for about twelve hours of shooting I think there was uh, seven or eight uh, instructors all of our families. And then uh, I don't know about thirty shooters, uh, I think that uh, showed up for to be in the movie, and uh, and we ran a regular apple seed, and the uh, there were several times that the director asked me that Chuck asked me to do stuff that wasn't in line with the uh, apple seed policy, either in the message that was being put out or in uh uh like uh on the the way that we run an event like maybe some of the uh some of the way that an event is run as far as uh, safety and stuff like that and I refused to do it because I said look I'm not going to do anything uh I'm not going to do anything that's going to be in this picture that uh, is not apple seed certified and I'm not going to say anything that's not apple seed certified and uh, he understood that and uh, so the apple seed section is not uh, uh we're not uh, running around pointing icebergs or uh, uh or, or switching out our red hats for ten four ones we're doing a regular apple seed and uh, we're talking to folks about what it means now, i haven't seen the the finished version of it yet so i don't really, i don't know how much time apple seed really gets uh, on the big screen but uh like I said, for uh, for you guys that have that are familiar with the Bible or read the Bible, if you remember at one point, uh, at one point, a lot of the folks were asking uh, Jesus why he spent so much time 
in uh, places that were not so good, uh, I guess whatever the equivalent of bars or brothels or stuff like that back then. And uh, I believe his reply was, uh, I don't remember exactly what he said, but the uh, the modern-day uh, interpretation would be, or translation would be, look, that's where the that's where the sinners are. That's where I'm going to where the sinners are. I don't need to go to the church to fix people because if they're in church, they've already probably got a pretty good fix that they're working on. I'm going to where the sinners are to fix them. And that's what we're doing in this movie. We're going to where the folks are that uh, they want, that are disturbed by what they're hearing and they want to do something. We're giving them an opportunity to actually do something by becoming part of the Appleseed Project. And uh, Roger Glenn was there at the opening the other day on uh, the 29th, and uh, he did a great job of passing out Appleseed flyers. And uh, as far as I understand, he's already had uh, a good number of calls from folks who want to attend events there. So when you see, if you're looking at the forum and you see somebody talking about the movie on the forum, or about uh, what a great job this is. Well, they're not talking about what a great job it is. Here's somebody else talking about Agenda 21 or anything like that. But tell you what a great job it is for Apple to get this um, this amount of exposure and to be getting it and then uh, getting it targeted at an audience that's willing to help. All right, and uh, that's what they're talking about when they're saying a great job for Apple Seed. So I hope that I've kind of cleared that up and made you guys understand that uh, that in the movie, Behold a Pale Horse from Heartland Pictures, that uh, we are attempting to go where the sinners are and get them on the bus with us, all right? We're not trying to go there and, uh, and become part of their uh, conspiratorial uh, anxiety-ridden uh, situation. We're going to go there, and we're going to lead them out of the wilderness and into uh, an organization that has the ability to make change. And that's Appleseed. <clears throat> All right. Uh, remember, if you want to call in and uh, and you want to thank some of your local crew, if you want to announce uh, a commercial venture that you're getting into, or if you want to talk about the recent uh, – April 19th events that uh, that you were involved in, then uh, give me a call at 347-308-8790. All right? 347-308-8790. And, uh, and that will get you... Uh, That'll get you uh, on the air, and we'll uh, give you a chance to uh, talk about whatever you want to talk about. Uh, we had a nice event here in the villa. Uh, Red Dot Chuck Leeming was a shoot boss for the event, and uh, I believe that, uh, that we had several riflemen made from it, and uh, uh, and the weather was absolutely perfect, and. Uh, it, it really worked out great. And I want to thank Chuck Leaming too, because he uh, he actually took a day off just recently uh, for one of his friend's sons. 
his friend's son was getting ready to deploy to Iraq, and uh, he uh, took a day off, brought him out here, and ran him through a uh, a one-day apple seed. The guy was leaving before the next apple seed was, uh, was due to come up. But he took a day off and came out here and did that because he wanted... He wanted the, the uh, I was going to say the boy, but he's not a boy. He's a man. Uh, I think he was 19. Uh, I shipped out overseas, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, four months after I turned 17. And once I got into country, uh, I was uh, a squad leader, and uh, I was in charge of uh, of a squad of men, and I had to sign for about... Uh, uh, I think it was close to $100,000 worth of uh, gear. And this is when I just turned 17. Uh, so by the time I was 19, I was already, uh, I'd already spent two years overseas. So he's not a boy. He's a man. He's a young man. And he wanted to take the time and and give the young man uh, a day of rifle marksmanship instruction so that he'd have the ability, hopefully, to make the shot if he needed to. And uh, Chuck, I really appreciate that. And uh, and Chuck Leeming, Red Dot, he's one of those guys, uh, he's a man to ride the river with, I tell you that. And he's always willing to help. Uh, he's, a, he's a guy that uh, uh, when, they, uh, when they're getting ready to ask for people to go on a mission, uh, and it's a nasty mission. He's the first one in line with his hands raised. He's a great guy, and I really appreciate this because he's been having it to spend a lot of time him himself in uh, Kuwait and uh, Dubai and Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, he's a retired uh, uh, colonel. He was a battalion commander with the military. But now he works uh, for another company. I'm not going to say the name of it, but he works for another company doing uh, running their contracts and stuff, and he just pushed through a big contract for the company, but he's, he's, he's been back and forth in and out of the uh, United States and had very little time of his own, uh, so that makes it even more uh, uh, more of a commitment whenever he, when as soon as he gets back, he jumps right into uh, running an apple seed, uh, uh, you know, up in Dallas, or, uh, or taking a day off to to teach one of his friend's sons, give them a uh, you know a full eight hours of instruction that may end up saving his life. Now, the, the, the young man isn't a, a uh, he's not a line dog. He's a, a rocket launcher battalion. That's what he was with. But because of the the current asymmetrical uh, makeup of today's modern warfare, where we are currently fighting. Uh, there really is no rear area. If you're a, if you're a rimp, I think is what we call them there, rear echelon motor pool type person, then uh, you're just as likely to, to, you know, to catch some lead as uh, as the line dogs are. So having the ability to make the shot when it counts is, uh, is a pretty important thing. So thank you, Chuck, for that. <clears throat> and, uh, uh, my hat's off to you. Uh, and uh, Chuck has also has come on board with Battle Road too. He's uh, he's uh, working with us 
at Battle Road here in Central Texas. And uh, I I appreciate that, too. He's a good man to have, as is uh, Bill Cronk. He has come on board with Battle Road. We also have uh, uh, a, a pretty uh, pretty in-depth uh, medical team at Battle Road. We have uh, uh, several surgeons, including the head of the uh, uh, one of the largest uh, emergency room uh, hospitals in uh, in Central Texas. And uh, they're on board, and they're getting ready to begin teaching uh, uh, medical classes here with Battle Road. So if it's, maybe if you're not uh, you're shooting in your gig and you want to instead uh, take on the role of uh, medic with your group or is it, or, or is you as an individual doing it, then uh, be sure and contact me at Battle Road because we'll have upcoming courses in uh, medicine, in first aid, and uh in survival medicine, etc. So be sure and uh, contact me, and I'll uh, get the information out to you on that. <clears throat> All right. Uh, I was really hoping that uh, folks would call in with AARs, but it looks like uh, like I said, once again tonight, our uh, our fifty lines are going to be kind of uh, lonely. I'm going to go ahead. I know that uh, that uh, Dean is listening because I can see it right here. The call screener put it in my uh, uh, in my queue here that says uh, Dean is here and he's just listening. But I went ahead and opened up his mic anyway because I want to hear how Dean did in Smithville, Texas. Dean, welcome to the show. Hey, Dean, you there? I know it says you're just listening, but you're not just sleeping, are you? All right, well, we'll get back to Dean in just a second. He may have just uh, stepped off for a second or something like that. But uh, I know that Dean did a, a shoot in Smithville, and uh, I'd like to hear about that. And I'd like to hear about any of uh, the rest of you guys that have any stories about your April 19th shoots. You can call in to 347-308-8790 uh, to talk about it. Three. Four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero and uh, and I'm just like giving up on the uh, on the chat because uh, there uh, one in five shows will I ever get it to open for me and it's not opening tonight so <clears throat> uh, if you have any questions or something go ahead and post them or send our uh, 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 message the uh, uh, the co-host, and uh, he'll get them to me. He'll post them in the queue where I can see them, and uh, and we'll be. I'll do the best to answer them on air here if I can. <clears throat> All right. So we know that uh, the the troops fought at uh, Lexington Green. On April 19th, 1775, they fought at Kington Green. They fought at the uh, North Bridge in Concord. And then they began fighting uh, soon afterwards, after, soon after the, the uh, British regulars left uh, Concord. And they got on the road, got in formation, got on the road, started marching. 
as soon as they ended up at Miriam's corner, then the colonists began attacking in earnest. And once the attack began there at uh, Miriam's corner, it didn't end. It continued all the way back to Boston. And, and it wasn't a short trip, guys. It was a long walk back to Boston. I can't remember the exact distance now. It seems to me for it seems to me that I that I I looked and I found a marker. I thought it said sixteen miles. Uh it could have it could have been thirteen, but I I'm almost positive it said sixteen miles was the the concrete marker. Now along the trail uh on Battle Road they've got the concrete markers up. They tell you the the miles the miles from from where you are back to Boston, and they also have uh, uh, headphones all along the way on Battle Road from the uh, the British regulars who were killed and buried there. They they were killed. The folks who were killed along the road they they dug a hole right there and they put them in it, and uh, they apparently they must have marked it because. Uh, there are headstones now all along Battle Road uh, where the where the British regulars fell, and uh, they've got a little British flag stuck in them because the uh, the folks from England come over, and they there's at any given time there's probably just about as many uh, English tourists along Battle Road as there are American tourists because they're there putting flags on the headstones uh, of their fallen troops. And uh, anyway, it was a long walk back. You think about it. You're going to walk uh, 16 miles, uh, you know, at, uh, at about two miles an hour, two to three miles an hour, which is a pretty fast pace. Uh, and you're getting shot at the whole way. Uh it, it was nonstop, and you know, at times I've, in my head, I've likened it to, uh, to maybe accidentally knocking down a hornet's nest or something like that. Now they're buzzing all around you, and you're you're flapping your arms all around your head to try and keep them off of you, and you can run any direction you want because, but it doesn't matter because they're coming with you. The hornets are going to come with you. And you're going to enjoy their company in whatever direction you run. So it doesn't matter which direction you run. It doesn't even matter if you run, because they're faster than you are. You, and that's what was happening to the regulars on their march back to Boston. They, uh, each of them, had brought uh, two dozen uh, or less. Uh, I don't want to say rounds, but uh, uh, cartridges. We'll call it that cartridges, because what it was was a uh, a piece of paper that uh, had the the lead ball and the gunpowder wrapped up in it, and it was wrapped up in rolls, even tied with a string. They had, uh, and what they would do, they would you know tear off the end, pour the powder in, uh, and uh, then put the ball in and put the paper in as packing, and uh, they had about two dozen or less per man when they started. And that, well, a lot of that was used up at uh, Lexington 
and then at Concord. And they still had uh, 16 miles to go back from Merrim's Corner. The colonists, on the other hand, were getting constantly resupplied by, uh, mostly by a system of boys on horseback who were riding to the local towns, picking up, uh, you know, like a big bag of, uh, of sandwiches and, and cartridges that were being made by the people there at home and running them up to the front. And uh, not only that, but it wasn't like the one same group of troops that were moving pace by pace with their British or their adversaries. It was uh, was troops. The colonists were being directed on where to go so that they would arrive at that point before the regulars got there. All right? And once the regulars got there, they would engage them. And the next group of folks had already been sent ahead of them. So that they would be waiting when the British regulars got to them. And this went on and on. So while you had the British regulars with uh, two dozen or less cartridges made up, and no extras, because if you remember, uh, the initial load of ammunition that was supposed to have been taken out with them uh, was just stainfully uh, left behind because they said they didn't need it. And then the wagon that Percy ordered out with him was uh, uh, captured uh, by the uh, uh, by the colonists as it was coming out to resupply them. So they didn't have any way of resupplying their ammunition. And they were constantly running into fresh troops, and these guys had uh, plenty of ammunition. So they're, as they're moving along, they're being shot at. The constant hornet's nest that they're, uh, that they're working under. And no breaks, no rest breaks, no, no water. They already ran out of all their water. If you remember reading uh, Hackett's story, that uh, that fights were breaking out. It was a, a hot day, even in April. Fights were breaking out around uh, the water points, wells and stuff uh, on houses along the road. And then men were even getting on their hands and knees and drinking from puddles in the road. All right, that's how that's how thirsty they were. And they had no supplies, no food. They're running out of ammunition, and they were having to be forced marched back to Boston under the guns of the colonists. Now remember, there wasn't uh, uh, there's nowhere to run. There's no there's no way to to get away. You got to go down this road. There wasn't uh, 25 different roads to get from Concord to uh, to Boston. All right. Now nowadays, of course, you could take any uh, any. I believe there was probably maybe eight or nine different ways to get from Concord to the next series of roads. And then, then maybe uh, two dozen uh, for the next two or three miles, and then maybe three dozen after that. I'm talking about modern roads and streets and stuff like that. Back then, there was only the one road. There was just the one road that you could take. It wasn't like the the colonists didn't know where you were going to appear. They knew exactly where you were going to show up because there was just the one road. So they were there waiting for them, and they were. Uh, they were engaging them for the most part. They were engaging them at distance, at maximum distance, uh, between uh, like 90 and 150 yards. But they weren't making uh, they weren't making consistent hits at that distance. But I got to tell you too that they weren't shooting uh, with the uh, 
uh, with these smoothbore muskets, which were not they were not that accurate past 75, 80 yards, but they weren't shooting trying to make a headshot on the soldiers. We're talking about a target that actually is the side of a barn. That is, uh, you know, uh, the the column of soldiers. So it wasn't like uh, it wasn't like you were you had to accurately shoot and hit something. You could shoot from a pretty great distance because the soldiers were packed shoulder to shoulder, uh, back to chest as they're marching. You had a really good chance of hitting somebody, and they were. They were dropping them all along the route. And if you can imagine marching in a column and and having under constant gunfire, and uh, and and this isn't just uh, fifteen minutes, ten minutes. This is hour after hour. The shooting continued, and. And people were getting hit. I'm sure. If it, think about it. If you were you or me, if it was me going down that road, I know right now what's in my head is when. When is my turn? When am I going to get hit? Uh, I know what's happening. I know what's going to come. When am I going to get hit? And and they were. Now some of the guys gave up. Some of the guys just sat on the road, sat down on the road, started crying, and. Uh, and those guys were taken into custody, and <clears throat> the wounded were left to fend for themselves. And uh, and it was a really horrific day for them. the The regulars were chased all the way back into Boston. Once they got to Boston, they once they got to, uh, to Charleston, and then the uh, the British men of war right there in the harbor were able to turn their guns uh, on the road leading in, and the colonists couldn't get any closer. And the British regulars that night took their refuge on uh, Bunker Hill. And uh, and the men rested there, and it took all night to ship the wounded uh, back over. And that began the siege of Boston. Then. That was the end of the day on April 19th, 1775. And the colonists kept the troops, kept the British regulars, kept them pinned up for eight months. And they kept them, uh, they kept any supplies from getting into the city. They kept the uh, the British regulars from getting out of the city, making any forays. <laughs> the only way they could be resupplied uh was uh, by sea, and uh, they were being sent their uh, their supplies from England to supply them there in Boston. All right, listen, we're going to take a break on the storytelling for just a second, and we'll pick it back up. We'll, we'll talk about this in the rest of the show, because I, I believe this part of the American Revolutionary War isn't talked about a lot. It kind of skipped over, but it contains some of the some really amazing feats uh, of engineering and uh, and stealth and tactics performed by the colonists uh, during the siege of Boston. And we're going to take some calls. We've got uh, uh, a couple of folks listening in 
Let's see. And then we get a couple of folks that want to talk. I've got Freedom V from Minnesota who said he wanted to talk. Freedom V, welcome to the show. Hi, Scott. Good to hear you. Well, um, well uh, go ahead. Give us give us a rundown. What do you got? Are you wanted to to let us know what okay. happened with your uh, April nineteenth event? April twenty first, twenty second in Rochester, Minnesota. We had a had a great shoot. We had uh one rifleman made Saturday and five more on Sunday and uh uh one of those riflemen stepped up for an orange hat. We were very very pleased with that. And uh at this apple seed I was able to pretty much get the whole family involved. My my daughter Rebecca, who is uh seven, was uh on the line uh pretty much the whole time with her cricket working on her uh working on her beginning marksmanship and uh she was just a great trooper. And uh, my daughter Charlotte who's ten was uh was working with her uh Tapco uh Ruger ten twenty two and and trying to get down the uh, all the steady hold factors, and my wife Judy was her second and third apple seed, and she was shoot tra- shooting AQTs from 190 to 208, working on getting over that last little bit to her right hand and pass. Excellent. And, well, she's right there. Yeah. So she's she's improved and and, and uh, got the got all the basics down. Where where now that she's got the basics down, she can uh, maybe move up from the bulk ammo to the CCI where it can make that last little bit of difference. But because she's been uh, really doing the the uh, all the fundamentals. Well, you know what? Uh, she's at that point now. Well, I'm not gonna say that. Uh, that is any different than anybody else. But she's at the point now, I'll tell you guys, too, I know I've talked about it on the show before, and uh, uh, let me say it again, is that the the bulk of the work that you do uh, in order to master your rifle, become the master of your rifle, and, and, uh, and to hone your skills should be done at home. It should be done uh, before you ever get to the range. And your range time, your apple seed time, should only be used to uh, confirm the uh, the mastery of the skills that you use, that, you, that you're that you working on. That means that if you really want to improve your score, if you want to get over the hump, you have to have a program of drive firing. And you can do this very easily in your home. And... Uh, and you don't have to overdo it. If you, it's in the 30 days between one apple seed and the next one, if you will spend 10 minutes, just 10 minutes a night, we're doing your dry firing, you will improve your score between 10 and 50 points. Uh, 50 points for the folks who are just starting, and 10 points for the folks who've been to a couple of apple seeds and been working on it. But you will improve your score tremendously and and whenever you're doing your 10 minutes, this includes getting down to the prone and uh, dry firing, uh, you know, 15, 20 shots, dry firing. And when I was so first started doing it, I would just get in my bedroom, nice, comfy bedroom, and uh, pick the uh, the four-level wall saw 
socket, use the, the ground receptacle hole, the little round hole in the bottom, and that would be my aiming point, and I would dry fire over and over. And then uh, the next night, you get down into your seated position, whatever it is. You get down in that seated position for 10 or 15 seconds. You don't have to make yourself cry. Just get into that seated position 10 or 15 seconds, and then you're out of it. You don't have to do it again until the next night. You keep doing this for 30 days, I guarantee you that your scores will improve. You can move from the just the uh, uh, the, the steady, uh, I mean, the building a stable position, move to the six steps, then move to uh, getting into the different positions and maintaining that position for a moment. Then you can move on to uh, mastering the mechanics of your rifle. What I mean by that is that uh, that really, once you've started, once you've been to an apple seed and you've learned how to safely handle your firearms, stuff like that, from then on, really, there, you should try not to have any more admin uh, handling of your rifle. And what I mean by that is you should not, uh, while, you're, while you're working with your rifle and stuff, you should not be doing it in an admin way. You should be doing it the same way you'd be doing it if you were on the lawn. And one of the things that you can do is you can teach yourself very easily in the course of 30 days. You can teach yourself how to uh, do magazine changes without looking at the rifle. You know, you can know you can you can learn how to to pick up the magazine, feel what it feels like in your hand, orient it correctly, put it into the rifle, take it out of the rifle, and put the other one in. You can do that over and over. I I do that uh, while I'm watching TV. Now, it usually has to be by when I'm watching TV by myself because if I try to do it while my wife is there, she'll just give me that look and she'll say, you know, seriously, really? You're going to do this <laughs> through the whole movie? <laughs> but if I'm by myself, I'll do it. I will. I'll do it through the whole movie because Get what I'm doing is I'm teaching my body uh, how to master this without any help from my mind. That means the less things that you that you have to bust up your concentration for to do, the easier it's going to be for you. Then you move from that to uh, rehearsing what you're going to do uh, for the different stages. Now, I'm not talking about gaming. I'm just talking about teaching yourself what you're going to do in the different stages. That means in the uh, in stage two, you're going to get down into the seated position. You're going to insert a magazine. You're going to take the safety off. Because the rifle won't fire with that safety still on. I see people doing it all the time. Pull, pull, pull. And uh, and nothing's happening. And the clock's ticking. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. And the safety's on. All right, so you have to take the safety off. And you have to chamber around. you got to chamber around. If there's not a round in there, it's not going to fire. And then you're going to fire two rounds at the first target. You're going to drop that mag. And you're going to put in another mag. Don't try and get more than two rounds out of a two-round mag, all right? That's going to cost you time, too. Just fire those two rounds. Put in the other mag, fire three rounds, switch your natural point of aim to the second target, and expend the five remaining rounds. That's what I mean by uh, rehearsing it. It's a little different than what you're going to do when you get on the line in your uh, prep period, in that you're going to rehearse what you're going to do so that you're no longer doing it by having to sit there and think about it. You're going to do it because you're familiar with it and you know what the uh, course of fire is. Uh, doing this, rehearsing this, practicing this at home, 
is where you learn to master it. When you get to the range, all you're doing is confirming that uh, your rehearsal and your practice was correct, right? So get her to do that. Get your uh, get your daughter to do that. Like I said, you only need 10 minutes at the most every night for 30 nights between one apple seed and the next, and you will see an absolutely amazing improvement. I've seen people that just couldn't get over 198, 198, 198, three times in a row. Uh, I sent them home with the, the uh, 10 minutes a night thing, and it was 215 easily on their first uh, AQT at the next event. So <clears throat> make sure that you're doing your dry fire practice at home, practice with your rifle, practice removing the admin handling of your rifle, practice uh, uh, understanding what the stages are going to be and how the course of fire runs within each of those stages, and uh, and you will go much further. All right, I'm, I'm I'm back to you now, Freedom. Did I lose you? Hold on just a second. The magazine. Uh, okay, hold on. I, I I just turned your mic back on. I don't know how it, somehow it, it dropped it or something, but you're back on now, Freedom. Okay. Yes, that's that's excellent. Uh, I've I've encouraged her to dry practice, but uh, more of the uh, magazine practice for stage. Magazine change practice for uh, stage two and three with the the timing would be would be helpful. We're looking forward right. to uh, Winona, Minnesota this weekend, and we still have a few few spots on the line. But uh, um, we got a good uh, instructor crew that's going to be there, and uh, there's a good clubhouse with uh, with uh, complimentary hot dogs for lunch. Wow. You guys are living it up. Who's going to be helping you out? Who's your regular crew there? Um, well, Cooper's going to be there, and uh, Kosciusko, or who also goes by K, uh, our state coordinator, is going to be shoot boss in training, and uh, VMT will probably be there also. And uh, a few of the other um, IITs, like myself that are uh that are learning learning the uh to be in- instructors at some point perhaps is whisker there um he's he one of your guys yes he's uh he's in iowa uh, recently and uh he does some traveling so i'm not sure if he's gonna be there uh this weekend but uh uh he's an excellent instructor yeah, I was speaking to him on the phone today, and he seemed really to be a really determined uh, instructor. He was saying he he really wanted to go. I wish that uh, I wish that we could, uh, you know, we had an unlimited budget so that we could send the folks that are that are raring to go. If we could send them off uh, to as many apple seeds as we could get them going to, but he seemed like uh, he was very determined to go and uh, to do a good job. Yeah, a lot of praise for the rest of you guys, too, from Minnesota. Great. Um, and what else? What do you What else do you have coming up? Um, let's see. The schedule from there, uh, there's uh, Hinkley, Minnesota, and uh, Wells, Minnesota. There's a uh, couple near the border in Wisconsin that uh, – that they're doing uh, near the lacrosse area, 
and uh, we're working on getting uh, uh, future shoots in uh, western Minnesota uh, near Albert Lee and uh, uh, some of the other, so we can branch out in some of the other areas of the state more. Well, I wish I was closer. I would still like to go to, uh, I'd like to figure out a way to get up there and come and visit you guys. I haven't been there in, geez, uh, 30 years. Uh, And the only place I'm really that familiar with in Minnesota is Ripley. Uh, you, uh, was, you uh, told us about the that? cold weather shoot. You told us, you told me about the cold winter shoot in Ripley once before. We uh, we may be having a December end of December, uh, right near New Year's Eve uh, winter winter shoot planning uh, for this year. Wow. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> good for you guys. I won't be coming to that one. <laughs> I've gotten older. I guess I've gotten less tolerant of the cold. You know, when I was younger, it, was, it didn't seem like it was that big a thing. But now I'm, a, now I'm an old man, and uh, at least that's what my kids tell me. I'm an old dude, and uh, and and I, I I usually don't voluntarily seek out cold weather, uh, especially not uh, Minnesota type cold weather. Yeah, we were there. I was there for the Winter Warfare School. Back in '83, uh, and uh, I guess I spent uh, either three or four weeks there because I went with the advance party to set up. And uh, yeah, and we spent uh, seven days out in one of y'all's uh, notorious storms. That uh, I, I think I remember when you and I were talking about it last time. I, I I swear that they told me at one point it got to 72 degrees below zero, but I don't know. <laughs> I mean. Well, hopefully it won't be that cold, but the the range just uh, didn't get enough as enough use this last December. So we we hope to uh, get a few more uh, riflemen on the line, and and uh, there's a, there's a few that have expressed interest in uh, going for the uh, the winter seed patch, and and that's uh, that's not earned lightly. And I I know there's uh, they need like a scorcher pass for the. Uh, Scorcher patch for the the people that are uh, shooting in uh, 110, 120 degree. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I'm gonna gonna make my own just by drawing some drawing some flames with a sharpie coming out of my patch or something. But uh, (laughs) I guess I'm gonna have to go to I'm gonna go up there with you guys or something to get my uh, my winter seed patch because we're not having any luck down here. You know, we did have one day of snow, but. I think just last year, but it, you know, it's snow in Texas. Uh, you could see it coming down, but when it hit the ground, it disappeared. So, I mean, I'm guessing that we're not going to have one. Uh, you know, every once in a while, we'll get some some freak weather like that here in Texas. But thank goodness, usually it's not on an apple seed, or or it's not one. It's not one that's bad enough that you could get your winter seed patch. Now we have we've had plenty of. Uh, of absolutely what I would call absolutely horrific apple seeds here, and that's where, as a matter of fact, uh, my partner and I, Mr. Martinez, and I were just talking about that because we were talking about the difference between uh, folks coming to Battle Road and folks going to Appleseed. Because I, I'm still, I'm still constantly amazed by the folks who have come to Appleseeds, and we had one, uh, uh, I guess three years, two years ago, three years ago. 
that was it was almost pouring down rain in the winter, uh, right above freezing. The, the rain wasn't quite freezing on the ground. You know, it was up in the air. wasn't quite freezing on the ground. And the people were still laying there in that dang rain shooting. And, uh, and I'm just always amazed at them because I'm thinking, would I do this? Would, would, I, get, would I go somewhere and do that? I mean, I have to now because I'm an instructor, but would I voluntarily go and do that? And uh, and the answer is, yeah, you know, I, I would because it's it's really it's that important. So, and you guys, you, you know, you, you guys live up in that 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 snowy, cold area for some reason. I don't know why, but y'all do. Y'all live up there in that that snow, and so y'all are fairly used to it. And I know that you guys are all geared up for it. So. Uh, so, anyway, I'm looking for some pictures. Looking forward to some pictures of y'all's December shoot. So, be sure and take a lot of pictures and post right, them so well, we can see it, okay? We'll have to make sure we have a camera there. But one other thing that, uh, one other comment is that uh, the the Appleseed history has uh, inspired my daughter, Charlotte, and she did a first person history presentation of Sybil Luddington uh, for school, and she also presented it at uh, lunchtime at the Appleseed, and she's going to do that again in Winona. Uh, Sybil Luddington was, uh, in 1777, at the age of 16, made a midnight ride twice as long as Paul Revere's to warn the colonial militia of uh, approaching enemy troops. Where where was this at? Uh, What was the town? It was... um, uh, it, uh, well, if you can't remember, that's okay. I was just wondering. I was just wondering if I could tie that in with the story tonight, because that's what that's what we're talking about at the events of seven. Uh, well, no, we're talking about seventy-six. Uh, yeah, it was. It was later in the war. Uh, and uh, her father, Colonel Luddington, was uh, was marshalling his troops, or was there to get the troops together, and they. Um, there was a town that the that the British were were burning. Charlotte, Falmouth. What I mean, what Norfolk. Norfolk. Uh, let's see. You're talking about the the town that they they uh, made a naval assault Danbury, on and burned it, right? Connecticut, Connecticut, right, Charlotte? Yeah. yeah. Danbury, Connecticut, was the was the town that the British were 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 burning, and. Uh, the the militia rallied to uh to save the town and to kept the kept the uh regulars from uh uh getting down to the main army uh the threatening uh Washington's uh main force wow what did what did the school say about it what did her class say about it? did uh were they happy to they, hear it yeah, they, she had a good presentation, and she uh, has presented it a couple other small other times, and and uh, is doing well with it. She, uh, it, it's good practice uh, to uh, for her her future strikes. Well, exactly, and you know what? That's one of the things that is destroying our nation right now is. They're, they are not taught history. They are not taught the Constitution. They are not taught any of that. They're, 
they're getting taught the exact opposite. Yes, you have the right uh, that uh, uh, to pursue, where uh, they have the right of life, liberty, and property in the pursuit of happiness. But we're not guaranteed happiness or wealth from the government. And a lot of people think that's what that's what we are guaranteed now. I was watching a show or a clip that was sent to me from, uh, uh, I don't know if it was Fox News or what, but they had a college instructor on there, and he was uh, reading some of the essays that were written by college folks, and they they were determined that they had the right to have a job, a home, a car, uh, and food, everything supplied to them by the government. And uh, the way that they, the way that the government was supposed to get this was to be to take the money from folks who had a surplus of it and give it to them. And this is what this is what a large percentage of these college students this is what they actually believed. This is what they this is what they felt was right. This was their interpretation of the Constitution because they hadn't been taught it in school. One line from her report was, although they did not save Danbury, or there was a lot of damage in Danbury, they stopped General William Tyron's troops on their way, who were on their way to fight General George Washington's army. Wow. So she made a ride. Uh, twice the length of Paul Revere's, and uh, I can't remember. It seems to me like that was that was either in the fall or or early spring, but I can't remember. Do you remember what the time period was? Let's see. Um, I, I think it was in April. It was in the spring of 1775. I uh, don't know. That was that was when she was 14. But it, it was also in April, a couple years 1777. later. 1777. 1777. Yeah. 1777. Yeah. She it sounds like she's trying to get you get you uh, right on the details here. Yep. <laughs> she's a little bit bashful, except for just with me. But uh, but. Uh, well, does she, she does she want it, does she want to get on the phone and tell the folks about it? <laughs> Maybe another time. She could. Uh, she's read the. Uh, there's a poem that goes with it, and there's a a movie, um, on Civil uh, Ludington that was uh, a fairly well done movie that that she's enjoyed also that uh, she found after we were looking into some of the the uh, lesser known heroes of the revolution. Well, if she uh, if she ever wants to come on and and do the poem. Or give the story here on the radio. We'd love to have her do it. Well, maybe at some point after she gets a little bit more confidence, she she uh, she did well presenting uh, at the Appleseed, and and she could do just as well talking into the phone. But she's imagining, you know, the hundred thousand in the audience, and 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 so she's got her face in the pillow right now. Yeah. Just tell her it's just me. I'm the only one that ever listened to this show. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very, Thanks, very Al. much. And anything else you want to get out before you go? Um, keep up, uh, keep up the good shows. We appreciate them. 
Well, listen, I, I appreciate that, Freedom, because uh, because that's the only reason that I do the radio show is because of you guys. Believe me, it's not uh, it's not from me because uh, or me trying to promote myself or anything. Uh, if that was if that was the case, it'd be a you'd have some quiet uh, Thursday nights because I'd probably be uh, I'd probably be in bed if I could get there. So I appreciate you saying that, and uh, and I look forward to to doing the show and uh, and having you guys listen. Okay. All right. Well, listen, freedom. Keep keep calling in and keep letting me know how it's going in Minnesota because I really appreciate it when you call in and uh, and give us the news from your neck of the woods. Okay. Will do. All right. Thank you, sir. Tell your daughter I said I'm really proud of her and what she's doing. And then as soon as she wants to uh, come on the show and do her presentation or read the poem, then, then we've got a slot open for her. We'll see if we can send it to you in an audio file to sometime. All right, perfect. All right, you take care, brother. Thanks again. Mm-hmm, bye-bye. Back, back to history. Okay. All right. Uh I don't know. Okay, back, back. Yes, uh, I don't know if I've got a, let me see if I've got a, okay, uh, there we go. I wasn't sure if my switchboard was uh, obeying me or not. And uh, I know that uh, uh, the call center said Warren was on, and it says now he's just listened, but uh he did offer, or he did say he had some comments to make a little bit earlier. I see that you're talking to the call screen right now, though. <clears throat> so I'll wait till you get through, and then, uh, and then we'll bring you, uh, we'll bring you on so you can, uh, you can get your comments out. Okay, so back to, uh, back to the events uh, at, right at the end of uh, April nineteenth. Okay, remember what it says? They had them pulled up into Boston, had them buttoned up in there and locked down. Uh, no way they could get out, and no way really anybody could get in. Uh, remember, at the time, Boston was was pretty much an island. If you go there now, it is it's nothing like what it was then, because they filled in a lot of the uh, uh, a lot of the uh, what was the harbor. Then, or what was the uh, the tidewater area? <clears throat> because even then, when the tide was out, you could walk from uh, like, like the mainland over to to Boston. Uh, I'm not sure that I would uh, advise anyone to do it because it's like walking through waist deep uh, mud most of the time. But you could do it. Uh, but the only thing that was connecting the uh, the two together was a little uh, piece of land at the end of the uh, of uh, the Boston Peninsula proper itself, and that's called the Charleston Neck. Now there was a causeway that uh, ran uh, from the, the there was a mill pond there, and there was a causeway that ran along the edge of the mill pond. Uh, but obviously you're not going to assault over the causeway. 
and you really couldn't assault over Charleston Neck because it was a very thin piece of ground, and the uh, the British regulars Navy had the ability uh, to cover that with their guns, with their naval guns. So once they were there, once they were locked up in Boston, it was pretty much of a pretty much of a done deal. Now what they did was, uh, uh, and there was a lot of confusion because remember, one they they got them, they they chased them back to Boston, and they've got them pinned up in there. But now what? Like I said, you really couldn't uh, you really couldn't make an attack and. And there was no, uh, there was, it was still just militia. The Continental Army hadn't been formed. There was no uh, uh, overall commanders. There was just uh, some generals that were locally in charge. Uh, It was all pretty confusing. And the, uh, the story of Bunker's Hill uh, begins on June 15th. So that is, uh, uh, let's see, that's right at 60 days from the, uh, or closer to, let's see, 25, well, about about 50, 50 some days after uh, April 19th. And the the battle at Bunkers Hill was one that the Continental Congress did not, they did not want them. They didn't know it was going to happen, but they would have. They would have put the veto on it if they could, because they didn't want any further at that time. They didn't want any further fighting for a couple of reasons. One is if there would have been some type of uh, an active engagement, which was precipitated by the the colonists then they would stand the possibility of losing their their standing as the wrong party. So they didn't want to do something that would, that would, instead of, that would make them look like rebels instead of somebody that had been assaulted and wrong. Uh, At this point, uh, the the news of Lexington, Lexington and Concord had not been in England for very long at all. Remember, they had to travel by by sea across uh, the Atlantic to get there, and even on the fast packet ship, it still took I think right at uh, was it twenty one days, three weeks. Uh, so the news of the battle really it was only a few weeks old at the time that Bunker Hill occurred and the uh, the the idea or the hopes of the folks in the Continental Congress and the folks that were the what would soon become uh work its way towards the becoming the government, well they didn't want to do anything that was going to that was going to remove their standing as the wrong party. So they didn't want something like this to happen, but it really wasn't in their hands at the time because the, this was falling under the uh, the auspices of the local commanders who had decided to occupy uh, Bunker Hill, which would allow them, uh, it would be a long shot, but would allow them uh, to have guns that they could bring to bear 
on uh, uh, on the uh, the regulars uh, on the the naval ships. I mean, they couldn't reach uh, Boston proper, but they could uh, they could bring their guns to bear on some of the naval ships. <laughs> and uh, all right, so so the story of Bunker Hill begins. Uh, uh, right on around on June 15th. Now, the, the Committee of Safety, uh, at this point, had, they had they gotten wind of a plan by Gage to occupy both the Dorchester Heights and the Heights on Charleston Peninsula. And uh, because he figured he would do this in order to, to keep somebody else from doing it because uh, it was a logical thing to do, right? And... Uh, when they when the committee of safety now they got to remember the committee of safety is not the Continental Congress or what would become it uh, the, this was a, a different uh, organization uh, they were more like the like the CIA of the of the Continental at the time anyway they got the they got the information that uh, Dave was going to send his troops over and he's going to occupy the heights there so the next day. The Americans, uh, the the uh, colonists, decided to go ahead and try and foil these plans. And uh, General Artemis Ward, Colonel uh, and Colonel Prescott uh, rounded up their regiments, and uh, including this was, they also grabbed some other elements of uh, uh, of some of the other Massachusetts militia regiments. Uh, they got a uh, there was a small contingent of the Connecticut troops, and uh, uh, Captain Grizzly Company of Artillery. That's my that's my phone. That somebody, one of the kids, changed the ringtone. Uh, they're always experimenting with my phone. All right, uh, and uh, uh, grab the uh, uh, Captain Grizzly's Company. Of artillery, and uh, they set out to occupy the heights in the middle of the night. Now there was a ton of work that was going to have to be done in order to make a defensible position. And after studying it and studying it, uh, Putnam and some of the other guys uh, figured out what they would do: was they would make the emplacements and take it with them because. that was going to be a lot easier, and there was nothing. There wasn't a lot of stuff there they could they could use uh, to make defensive positions. So they made a bunch of stuff to take with them, and, and uh, uh, I believe they were called fascines, and uh, they were like uh, like woven large woven barrels that could be uh, stuffed with twisted hay and dirt. That could uh, and then stood side by side in order to stop the uh, the musket rounds. Uh, and they they left in the middle of the night. The uh, units got to uh, Bunker Hill, and uh, like I said, actually it was uh, Breed's Hill. Uh, we keep calling it Bunker Hill, but Bunker Hill was uh, a very uh, ancillary point. Uh, it was uh, more of a command and control 
location uh, along with uh, reserves and stuff. Breed's Hill was actually the larger hill that uh, uh, that overlooked the uh, the Charles River. <clears throat> all right, so they got uh, all of their gear up there in the middle of the night. Uh, all of the guys were uh, uh, were cautioned to remain silent, not to make any noise, uh, and uh, the. Let's see. I believe that they also. Uh, I think that they also began some kind of a bombardment, uh, some kind of a artillery bombardment too, to cover the the work that was done. Anyway, they worked through the night, uh, building the positions. Uh, they built a, a pretty severe redoubt right on the top of Breed's Hill, and then several other. Uh, uh, several other fixed positions where they could uh, defend uh, Breed's Hill and Bunker's Hill. The uh, the sunrise on June seventeenth uh, allowed the uh, uh, the British regulars to look across and and be amazed to see the amount of work that they had done. Uh, setting up their defensive positions and uh, the the idea of the, the regulars had already been to go over there and occupy. So they were pretty much ready uh, to do that. They already had all the, uh, the logistics and everything worked out to ship the men over there. So they did. They started, uh, first they brought their ships up the, uh, and turned the naval guns uh, on the position but what they found was they they couldn't uh, they couldn't elevate their guns enough uh, to to hit the positions on top of Breedfield. However, they did uh, bombard the town of Charleston and, and pretty much reduced the town just to ashes. Now, fortunately, most of the folks there who were living there in Charleston had already slipped out in the middle of the night because they knew what was coming. There was going to be a battle. And uh, most of them had already uh, fled back across uh, Charleston next to the American lines. And uh, basically it was just, the town just got burned to the ground. Uh, and Bunker's Hill, the Battle of Bunker Hill, is what, it's what we know it is now. Like I told you, it was already, it was actually Breed's Hill. But the battle at uh, Breed's Hill or, is was actually a much, much greater battle than Lexington or Concord uh combined. The the only the only difference is there's there's so little uh literature on it. There's no stories were done about it. Now when you tell when you say Bunker Hill to somebody they they recognize the name of the battle, but they don't really they, they don't really know uh that much about what's going on. So, uh, let's see. Uh, we've got uh, we've got several sections of the story here uh, that I'll read. There were letters from the the folks uh, on the colonial side, and then and then I'll read you some of the stuff from the. Uh, the British version. 
And uh, the actually the best uh, the best of the American accounts uh, of Bunker's Hill come from the some of the ordinary soldiers uh, who fought in it, and uh, uh, and some of the civilians who uh, who were actually who were either taking part or just watching the battles. The British accounts were mainly written by uh, Generals Gage, by Howe, Burgoyne, uh, Lord Rodden. Uh, and the, um, the difference between the two of them, the American accounts are pretty much, uh, you know, they're pretty informal and and a, a bit disorganized and haphazard. Uh, and the British accounts are, are pretty formal. Cause like I said, they're written by the uh, by the officers, and uh, the outcome, of course, of the Battle of Bunker Hill was <clears throat> it was technically uh, a defeat for the colonists. You know, they were driven from their positions, but uh, and driven from the whole peninsula, you know, which was then occupied uh, and garrisoned by the by the British. But uh, but if you read the stories from the colonial side, they, none of them are considering it a, a defeat. And and indeed, it was uh, it was pretty much of a pyrrhic victory. You know, the British casualties were about one thousand one hundred and fifty. Uh, dead or wounded, uh, British regulars. Now, this is out of a total of uh, 2,500 men that they actually deployed to fight. And uh, the uh, the, the American side lost about uh, 400 out of a total of about between 1,500 and 1,600 men. And uh, even General Gage wrote, let's see, he wrote here, the loss we have sustained is greater than we can bear. And uh, uh, and there were other uh, British regulars, British officers who wrote uh, even back to England saying uh, another victory, if we, if we get another victory like Bunker Hill, uh, we will lose the colonies because uh, because I, there, there were only about 4,000 men at the time, British regulars, in uh, in the colonies at the time. For them to lose over a quarter of their men in one battle was uh, was horrific. Uh, all right, let me give you uh, let me give you one of the accounts here from the uh, the American versions. Once again, I'm reading from the Spirit of '76 by uh, Castle Books. <clears throat> and uh, uh, this is from the diary of Amos Farnsworth. He was a corporal in the Massachusetts militia. Friday, June 16th. Nothing done in the forenoon. In the afternoon, we had orders to be ready to march. At 6, agreeable to orders, our regiment pre-did, and about sunset, we was drawn up and heard prayers, and about dusk, marched for Bunker's Hill under command of our own Colonel Prescott. 
Just before we turned out of the road to go up Bunkers Hill, Charleston, we was halted and about 60 men was taken out of our battalion to go into Charleston, I being one of them. Captain Lutton headed us down to the townhouse. We sought our centers by the wayside. The most of us got in the townhouse but had orders not to shut our eyes. Our men marched to Bunker Hill and began their entrenchment and carried it on with the utmost vigor all night. Uh, forgive me if I'm reading kind of stilted, but it's uh, but this is directly from his diary, and uh, the spelling is is very interesting, in, to say the least. Early in the morning, I joined them. Saturday, June 17th. The enemy appeared to be much alarmed on Saturday morning when they discovered our operations and immediately began a heavy cannonading from a battery on Core Hill in Boston and from the ships in the harbor. We, with little loss, continued to carry on our works till 1 o'clock when we discovered a large body of the enemy crossing Charles River from Boston. They landed on a point of land about a mile eastward of our entrenchment and immediately disposed their army for an attack, previous to which that set fire to the town of Charleston. It is supposed that the enemy intended to attack us under the cover of the smoke from the burning houses, the wind favoring them in such a design. On the other side, their army was extending northwards towards Mystic River with an apparent design of surrounding our men in the works and of cutting off any assistance intended for our relief. They were, however, in some measure, counteracted in this design and drew their army into closer order. As the enemy approached, our men was not only exposed to the attack of a very numerous musketry, but to the very heavy fire of the battery on Core Hill. Core Hill was across uh, the uh, Charleston River. Uh, the battery on Cora Hill, four or five men of war, several armed boats or floating batteries in Mystic River, and a number of field pieces. Notwithstanding, we within the entrenchment and a breastwork without sustained the enemy's attacks with great bravery and resolution, killed and wounded great numbers of the regulars, and repulsed them several times, and after bearing for about two hours, as severe and heavy a fire as perhaps ever was known, and many having fired away all their ammunition and having no reinforcements, although there was a great body of men nigh by, we were overpowered by numbers and obliged to leave the entrenchment, retreating about sunset to a small distance over Charleston Neck. I did not leave the entrenchment until the enemy got in it. I then retreated 10 or 15 rods. Then I received a wound in my right arm, the ball going through a little below my elbow, breaking the little shell bone. Another ball struck my back, taking a piece of skin about as, taking taking off a piece of skin about as big as a penny. Pennies were pretty big back then. But I got to Cambridge that night. The town of Charleston supposed to contain about 300 dwelling houses, a great number of which were large and elegant, besides 150 or 200 other buildings, are almost all laid in ashes by the barbarity and wanton cruelty of that infernal villain Thomas Gage. <laughs> 
Oh, the goodness of God in preserving my life, although they fell on my right hand and on my left hand. Oh, may this act of deliverance of thine, O God, lead me never to distrust thee. But may I ever trust in thee and put and put condolence in no arm of flesh. Confidence. Put confidence in no arm of flesh. I was in great pain the first night with my wound. That's the end of his, his entry there. I was in great pain the first night with my wound. It had been shot in uh, a little below my elbow, breaking the little shell bone. A little below my elbow, breaking the little shell bone. Uh, that must be the uh, ulna. Uh, the, I guess not, you can't tell which side of it, the radius or the ulna. Anyway, he, he, one of those bones was broken. And I, apparently they must have been able to, either the clean break or they were able to get the the pieces of bone out and tidy it up. Normally a ball hitting a bone created such a mess. It was so large and, and traveling at a slow enough speed that it would create such a mess that the surgeons would have no choice but to amputate the arm. I didn't see if that happened or not, but he, all he said was, I was in great pain the first night with my wound. That's it. Uh, all right. Let's uh, let's take a look at one of the uh, at what one of the regulars wrote about this. See how they <clears throat> uh, see what they say. Okay, we have General Howe is uh, writing a letter on June 22nd. This was, uh, what, uh, four days, five days later. He's writing it to, uh, they were saying he's probably writing, the notation here said he was probably writing it to the British Adjutant General. This is for Sir Sir William Howe. Came upon the heights of Charleston, June 22nd and 24th. The troops were no sooner sure than it was instantly perceived the enemy were very strongly posted, the redoubt upon their right being large and full of men with cannons. The right of the redoubt had troops in the houses of Charleston, and about 200 yards distant from the redoubt, the intermediate space not occupied, being exposed to the cannon of the Boston side battery. On the left of the redoubt, they had a line cannon proof about 80 yards in length. And what he means is that... They weren't able to. They weren't able to destroy it with their cannons uh, because it built so strongly. Uh, about 80 yards in length, and from thence to their left, close upon the Mystic River, they had a breastwork made with strong railing, taken for the fences and stuffed with hay, which effectually secured those behind it from musketry. This breastwork was about 300 uh, yards in extent. They had made the hole in the night of the 16th. <laughs> I bet it was a surprise for them. As a specimen of our knowledge of service, the sentries on the Boston side had heard the rebels at work all night without making any other report of it except mentioning it in conversation in the morning. The first knowledge that General had of it was by hearing one of the ships firing at the workmen and going to see what occasion the firing there worked when we landed 
were crowded with men about 500 yards from us. From the appearance of their situation and numbers, and seeing that they were pouring in all the strength they could collect, I said to General Gage the desire to desire a reinforcement, which he immediately complied with. The remaining light companies and grenadiers, with the 47th Battalion and the 1st Battalion of the Marines, landing soon after. Our strength being then about 2,200 rank and file, with six field pieces, two light 12-pounders, and two howitzers, we began the attack. The troops in two lines with uh, Pigot upon the left. By a sharp cannonade, the line moving slowly and frequently halting to give time for the artillery to fire. Apparently, you have the artillery uh, moving with them. The light companies upon the right were ordered to keep along the beach to attack the left point of the enemy's breastworks. Now, if you look, if you look at an over overhead picture of this, uh, you'll see. Let me see if I can find it. You'll see that uh, they had a uh, a very strong redoubt at the top of Reed's Hill, but then they had two long wings extending from it. Okay, what happened? What this caused is it caused the the troops. The British regulars who were tra- attacking the redoubt, attacking retail, they had to move into what what was what looked like a V-shaped uh, defense position, with the 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 uh, apex of the V on the redoubt and the arms extending out and opening up as it's going down the hill. So the troops that were attacking were being fired at uh, from the redoubt, you know, head on. And then they were being fired into their flanks by either side of the the men uh, uh, in the breastworks there. So it was a pretty rough uh, attack. Uh, The Grenadiers being directed to attack the enemy's left in front, supported by the 5th and the 52nd. Their orders were executed by the Grenadiers and two battalions with a laudable perseverance, but not with the greatest share of discipline. For as soon as the order with which they set for with with which they set forward to attack with bayonets was checked by a difficulty they met with in getting over some very high fences of strong railing. Oh, that's right, I forgot to mention that too. <clears throat> so here you have the uh, you have the readout on top of Breeze Hill, uh, which is the uh, apex of the V. You got the two arms of the V extending down. Uh, and opening up, then crossing that are were several really large uh, fences that they had to cross. So they couldn't just uh, do a quick, a fast charge. Uh, every time they got any speed up at all, they ended up at a really strong fence that they would have to cross, so it stopped them again. Every time you stopped those guys, then they were able to pour the... Uh, Pour the musket balls in on them from uh, from their flanks and from the redoubt uh, with cannon firing grape and uh, cannon round shot and then muskets. <clears throat> so it was not an easy attack. <clears throat> uh, uh, they met with difficulty in getting over some very high fences of strong railing under heavy fire, well kept up by the rebels. They began firing and crowding fell into disorder. And in this state, the second line mixed with them. That means that instead of having keeping their forces uh, separated in two, into two distinct uh, attacking forces, they got mixed up, making one target. 
the light infantry at the same time being repulsed, there was a moment that I never felt before. But by the gallantry of the officers, it was recovered and the attack carried. Mm. So he's saying there was a moment that I never felt before. And apparently he's talking about the moment he felt was, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. We're not going to make it. But the officers managed to rally the men and got the attack moving again. Upon the left, they got met with the same obstruction from the fences and also have the troops in the houses to combat with before he could proceed to assail the redoubt or to turn it to his left. The town being set on fire by order at this critical time by a carcass from the battery on the Boston side, uh, that is, uh, they were firing uh, uh, flammable shot into the town. <clears throat> uh, got was relieved from his enemies in that quarter. That's when they started burning the town. Uh, so when they started burning the town, it was forcing the colonial defenders out of the town from using the cover of the town because the British set them on fire. Pico was relieved from his enemies in that quarter, and at the second onset, he carried the redoubt in the handsomest manner, though it was most obstinately defended to the last. Thirty of the rebels, not having time to get away, were killed with bayonets inside the redoubt. The little man is worthy of our master's favor. Now, what had happened was they had sent for reinforcements back uh, to the reserves, but the reinforcements did not come in time, and they ran out of ammunition. They were firing at such a fast rate that they ran out of ammunition. I believe at the very end, uh, they were trying to sift through the uh, the dirt there on the hill to try and get some uh, gravel or pebbles out of it. Uh, they had broken bottles, and they were they were uh, loading the broken glass into the muskets. They'd run out of ammunition, and they didn't have bayonets. Remember, this this was before they got the military version of the rifle. They didn't have bayonets. They just had their muskets. So when you've got uh, when you've got when when you with no bayonets are forcing uh, facing guys with bayonets, uh, you're at a distinct uh, disadvantage. All right, uh, I hear the. I hear the British lady speaking in my ear. We've got 90 seconds left. Uh, I want to tell you guys uh, thanks again for tuning in this evening. Uh, we're going to have uh, Chuck Hunter see you on uh, in the very near future. He is the director of the movie Behold a Pale Horse. And uh, I think you guys will enjoy that. And uh, I look forward to seeing you guys again this uh, next Thursday, 7 p.m. Central. Until then, uh, until then, God bless and keep you all. And uh, we will see you uh, next Thursday, 7 p.m. Central. All right. Good night, everybody. I was free.
Just how free. 